0: December 1681 Location unknown Somewhere south Beyond the edge of the world The cold wind howls and beats against the hull of the 400-ton galleon Trinity In his spacious cabin Captain Bartholomew Sharp turns a glass of wine in his hand and considers his options He sits surrounded by navigational charts that are of little use. The Trinity is now beyond any known map. It's the end of a bad year. With Christmas closing in, Sharp is in a pretty mess, again. It's been days since they last saw land. The jagged fjords that line the southernmost tip of the Americas have long sunk out of view. Relentless, savage storms had driven them further and further south, farther south than any ship had gone before. The temperature has risen slightly as the storms relented. Now they drift among icebergs. On deck, hands freeze as snow gives way to icy rain. Their voyages in the South Pacific had been eventful. Over the previous years, they had won much, and lost much. The surviving crew is battered, hungry, and fractious. Loyalty is wavering. Christmas is now upon them again. Dissent and mutiny stirs. Not for the first time. Over the past year, Sharp has faced down at least three mutinies. The first occurred the previous Christmas. It saw him deposed, then reinstalled. The second he managed to suppress by force. The third saw half his crew desert. The Trinity is undermanned and under siege by foul weather and bad fortune. Supplies are dangerously low. The crew are half starved and restless. Civil war had almost erupted on their last landfall. After heavy drinking, arguments broke out. Sharp grabbed a pistol and went to shoot a man through the head. Luckily, he missed. Tempers were calmed, for the time being. But Sharp has heard of a plot brewing. The crew planned to kill him on Christmas Day. Now sat in his cabin, swirling the blood-red wine in his glass. A thought occurs to him. What doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. He decides to throw a Christmas feast. They still have plenty of wine and they've saved a fat hog for just the occasion. Sharp knows the men are only emboldened to rise up when fueled with Dutch courage, booze. So he makes a bold play. One big celebration and the wine is gone. And with it he hopes the continual threat of mutiny. He only has to survive the feast. Someone tries to recall a prayer. Some shout it down and curse, others laugh. The pirates sing a carol together. The surgeon reads a poem. The non-Christian crewmen look on bemused, far from home and very cold, but equally happy with their generous rations of wine. But there's not enough food to go round. A sliver of pork each, some pickled plantain, The end of the salt beef, which is more like a leather boot. The meal is better than hard tack, but hardly a bountiful feast. Sharp tries to read the mood of the crew. It's on a knife edge, teetering between celebration and rebellion. A drunken brawl breaks out. Someone grabs the quartermaster's dog, a small spaniel with golden hair. A snap election is held. They vote to eat it. Captain Sharp, who has remained more or less sober, now steps in and grabs the poor animal. With a hand resting on his pistol, he stares down the crew. In the drunken confusion, tempers flare. Something Sharp means to eat the dog himself. Others just want to fight. This is the moment Sharp has been dreading. The brawl breaks out again, but the befuddled pirates are too inebriated to keep it up, and they soon fall about, laughing. The mood lifts. Sharp relaxes his grip on the pistol and watches on anxiously, as does the dog. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, and Bonnie, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: This week, we take a break from the stories of our Golden Age Pirates and Nassau as we swap Yo-Ho and a bottle of rum for a Ho-Ho Merry Christmas we ask the question, how do pirates celebrate the festive season in this real pirates holiday special? End of year celebrations date back for millennia and appear in countless cultures across the world. Sailors are no different. Come Christmas time, their thoughts would likely turn to family, hearth and home. We know from historical records that pirates like to party all the time. So might you if you lived a violent, precarious existence outside of law-abiding society, eking out a living on the edge of the world. They called it the merry life. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever.
2: I would say the merry life is pirates drinking copiously, wine, rum, anything they possibly could. Mixed drinks, dancing, singing, shouting, and just really having a, think of a massive party. Think of like a college party, a uni party, basically. That's what you're going to get with pirates.
0: Jeremy Moss is author of The Life and Trials of the Gentleman Pirate, Major Steed Bonnet,
3: The best story that shows that it's a Blackbeard story in what's called the Ocracoke Orgy. Blackbeard was just literally hanging out in North Carolina out on his boat. And Charles Vane, who's an old buddy of Blackbeard's from Nassau, comes into Ocracoke, and probably one of the best parties of all time. You think about one of these music festivals, literally hundreds, up to 400 pirates that were on the shores of Ocracoke Island and were doing everything that you can imagine that they would. Right? They were drinking, pirates, especially those at the time, loved to drink Madeira wine, loved to drink rum, which was readily available. And really the lack of probably any female presence on most of these ships creates a little bit of a, like a Lord of the Flies situation, right? There's, there's no adult on board and nobody to watch trying to create this civil environment. They would wrestle and fight and play cards and play games and
0: dice. The merry life of freedom and alcohol was all part of the allure of piracy. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. Where did their numbers come from? And the answer is most of the pirate recruits who fueled the expansion of this
3: golden age of piracy were sailors on board the ships that the pirates
0: captured. Sailors who saw the pirates arrive and break open the Madeira wine and start partying and said, hey, I want to come with you. This was especially true during the so-called golden age of piracy the 18th century swashbucklers of the Caribbean, Atlantic Ocean and Red Seas. Their pirate crews were majority British and European, Christian nations. At least, in theory. So what about Christmas? Was it observed at all? Sources are limited, but there are some clues.
2: Pirates were known not to be very religious in general. In fact, a lot of them would deliberately kind of go against a lot of religious norms because they were these social outcasts in a way. Now, a general history of the pirates does name a couple of instances of pirates who did have sort of Christmassy celebrations.
3: Calico Jack Rackham's crew, and that includes Mary Read and Anne Bonny, had just finished attacking a, a series of ships and as Christmas came, right, December 25th, they went onto a small island for purposes of spending their Christmas ashore. Right, so they cleaned themselves up, they spent the Christmas ashore, and they were just drinking and carousing as long as they had any liquor left before they went to sea again. In
2: 1720, according to a general history, the pirate Edward England took his crew on land, and they pretty much went on a three-day Christmas bender. Sam Bellamy apparently had a big kind of raucous party on one of the coasts in New England, I forget exactly where but it was on New Year's Eve, and it was said to be such an event that pretty much all the local men ended up joining up and kind of celebrating with Bellamy.
3: Pirates, even though they were out on the fringes, you know, they still had some respect for societal norms, which is to celebrate these holidays and and make a merry way about it. They did it in the most piratey way possible, right? They drank a lot until they couldn't drink anymore. Pirates were generally bad people. They were robbers and murderers, but they were also real people. But I always thought it's fascinating, particularly fascinating at Christmas time, that they went ashore, they washed themselves up, and then they drank amongst themselves as friends, much like you would do if you were here and
0: you wanted to have a big Christmas party. For the pirates that did celebrate Christmas, was there a religious element involved? These European crews of the Golden Age are made up of Protestants and Catholics who may have differed in their views. Dr Manishag Powell is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates.
4: Christmas is one of the feast days for most Christians, but not all Christian flavors celebrate Christmas in the same ways. And I mean, there is that funny anecdote about Henry Morgan and getting the semi-bloodless surrender of that little island. And one of the rumors was it was because the Catholics, the French and the the Spanish Catholics, refused to shed blood on Christmas day. On the one possibility, it's Protestant versus Catholic Christmas. (laughs) Like maybe the Protestant was willing to go to war, but the Catholics weren't.
0: Whatever the split of Christians on board a pirate ship, there would have also been a range of other nations and cultures present.
2: What's also interesting is that if pirates were going to have Christmas on their ship, it would have been a very multicultural Christmas. And this is because of how diverse the pirate ships were. People from all kinds of different countries throughout Europe, um, parts of Africa, even parts of Southeast Asia, they all kind of have their own customs relating to the holidays, whether or not it's actually Christmas. Most cultures have a holiday around that time because of a winter solstice. So if pirates did do Christmas on the ship, it would have been a really interesting affair.
0: Having a crazy office party wasn't for everyone though. Many captains ran a tight ship and were hard at work on Christmas day. In 1715, Captain Henry Jennings was raiding the Spanish treasure camps in Florida, causing an international crisis. Privateer Woods Rogers had an even more event for Yuletide back in 1709. He captured a Spanish galleon and made a fortune. But he also got shot in the face with a pistol and watched his brother die. Well, can't have it all your own way. But in general, Christmas for many pirate crews was likely to be a day of rest and relaxation, if not prayer and reflection. In fact, pirates probably observed it in the secular way that many cultures still enjoy today, eating too much, drinking too much, and fighting with loved ones, especially the English. Only difference is, when a pirate party gets out of hand, it can quickly become a matter of life or death. However pirates celebrated, the excesses and debauchery start to make sense when you understand the hardship that was common
1: to life on the high seas.
0: It's mid-December in 1710, somewhere off the coast of New England. With a cold wind at their banks, the pirate sloop delight plows through the dark gray waters of the North Atlantic. They head south to the warmer climes of the Caribbean, fleeing the winter weather and, they hope, escaping the hardship of the previous months. As his frozen hands try to navigate the rigging, young Master Lewis tries to imagine their destination. Warm turquoise waters, white sand beaches, palm trees full of sweet fruit and strange animals, hard-shelled reptiles the size of a dog and countless colorful birds. Birds that make wonderful pies by all accounts. As the icy wind cuts through his calico shirt and chills his small bones, he longs for it to be true. His stomach growls perpetually. All he's known in his short life is poverty, hunger and desperation. And that was even before he went to sea. For months, long before the mutiny that took the good merchant ship delight into piracy, the older mariners on board had regaled him and the other young lads with tales of piracy in the tropics. Life as a merchant seaman was grim, but since turning pirate, the crew had fared little better. A far cry from what was promised.
2: The life of a pirate really consisted of feast and famine. You're going to have periods of time where they're not successful in taking a prize, or they're just not running across anything, or the ships they are running across are out of their league in terms of what they could realistically actually attack. Maybe the ship's too big, it's too well armed, that sort of thing. So this becomes a really rough time on a pirate ship. During all this time, pirates are having to really dip into all of their food stores. And so they have to start rationing food a bit more. They're gonna start relying a lot on their dried goods, like beans, hardtack.
3: Fresh water was stored in casks, which was prone to developing algae or mold. I mean, these guys were at sea for a long period of time, and there was really not any safe ports for them to go to. So they relied on the taking of provisions for other
0: people. Worse still is getting caught far from land, adrift with no wind and no hope of resupplying, a fate all mariners feared like the plague.
4: The worst they can get is very, very bad. So, you know, maybe there's no stagnant water at all. Maybe all you've got is rainwater and people are sucking the sweat out of their clothes. Can you imagine just slowly going mad of thirst, surrounded by a blue ocean? So that's very bad. You get into situations where they've eaten all the ship's rats and there's people chewing on their belts or their shoe leather because there's nothing to eat. So it could be, I think, very, very grim.
0: It was in these conditions that the brotherly bonds of pirates would be most tested. And when ideas of mutiny start to take hold, which is exactly the situation Captain Bartholomew Sharp found himself in over Christmas, 1681, whilst navigating around Cape Horn.
4: The part of the story that everyone seems to agree on is they're rounding the Cape and it's freezing and the men are starving and they're thinking quite seriously of mutinying against Captain Sharp. He got word of this, so he got everybody drunk because it was Christmas. He busted out the alcohol to make them happy and to sort of diffuse the anger. Another version is that he thought they would never dare mutiny against him if they were sober. And so he was trying to use up all the alcohol (laughs) before they could get around to it. So what happened was he gets word that his crew is planning to mutiny because they're in this absolute miserable stretch, you know, among the icebergs. They could very well have died and it would have been a terrible death. So one understands the resentment but they had a Christmas feast and that does seem to have diffused the mutiny. But then the story gets a little more complicated as to whether that was enough food. And so these accounts bring up there being a spaniel, a dog that was also part of the Christmas feast. And so some versions, they ate the spaniel too. I think it was the quartermaster's dog. And other versions, Sharp bought the dog intending to feed it to the crew or intending to eat it himself if they didn't successfully round the horn and sight land within three days. I prefer to go with the version where nobody ate the dog and that it was just this nice piece of bravado from the captain like, I'll eat this dog if we don't get safely to land and they got safely to land and nobody ate the dog.
0: These fallow periods could occur anywhere, though less common in the Caribbean, where both ships and islands were plentiful. But a pirate captain's command is only as good as his last prize, and crews could quickly revolt if their luck didn't turn. Hitting a prize at the right time could mean the end of a period of hardship. In those cases, the treasure pirates valued most wasn't silver or gold, but the means of life. Flour, fruit, livestock, vegetables, sugar, rum. But even successful pirate crews would have to make landfall eventually. Vessels need periodic maintenance on land, and fresh water and food supplies could be more readily restocked these periods were also an excellent opportunity to relax and unwind. No wonder then that many pirates of the golden age chose to spend the holiday period this way.
2: So around the Christmas period, as we're going into winter in December, this was the period of time when pirates would start to lie low and probably take a break on land. And this is because they had to careen their ships, they had to caulk their ships, meaning that they're cleaning the underside. And so they would probably go down into the warmer areas, particularly because that's where the seas would be a lot calmer. So they go into the Caribbean. Uh, Samuel Bellamy, for instance, actually went down as far south as Venezuela to caulk his ship for Christmas.
0: Well, who wouldn't say yes to Christmas on a Caribbean beach? It's December 24th, Christmas Eve. A balmy sea breeze rolls in off the crystal clear water and across the endless white sand beach. On a small island in the Lesser Antilles, nestled within a small palm-fringed cove, a scene of happy labor is unfolding. Well, happy for some. The crew of the pirate ship delight, laugh and joke as they go about their chores. The ship's great hull is propped up against a smaller vessel whose captive crew keep their distance from the pirates as best they can. The pirates seem happy enough in their work careening the ship, scraping and scrubbing away the barnacles, weeds and algae from the wood. Laughter breaks out again before some of the pirates launch into song.
2: Now, during a lot of downtime, pirates had to find ways to entertain themselves outside of drinking, because that's not going to take care of everything. And so they did have a lot of other forms of entertainment. So one of the top ways pirates entertained themselves on the ship was through music. They usually had musicians on the ship. There were many, many sailors who were actually musicians because sea shanties and working songs were very standard. People would sing while they were working.
0: The pirates also sing carols. It's Christmas after all. I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas day, on Christmas day. Always a favorite with sailors. Further off, another group of pirates form a jolly circle, handing out nets, pikes, and muskets. The hunting party. It won't be salted beef or pickled turnips tonight. There will be a proper Christmas feast.
3: Sometimes these islands did have things like pigs and cattle and chickens. It was a practice among the Spanish, at least in the 1600s. Whenever they found an uninhabited island, they would drop off a few of these animals in order to populate them with food stores, with the understanding that if these pigs and cattle would reproduce over time, there would be easy places for the Spanish to stop off and pick up food as they went along. So some of these pirates would be able to take advantage of those animals that were now feral or wild that were on some of these other islands.
0: The hunting party has been drinking, of course. They fall about laughing and wrestling one another. Someone accidentally fires a gun. Some of the older hands offer advice and explain the rules of the game to newcomers. Points are awarded for hog, fowl and turtles. Forfeits for those who come back empty-handed. Winter months are mating season for wild hogs. They'll be particularly aggressive. However, this is not one of the gems of wisdom the elders pass on. This they keep to themselves. They hang back, grinning to each other as the youngsters rush off into the forests, including the young pirate Lewis. A yelp and cry of pain can be heard as somewhere in the undergrowth, the poor lad is set upon by an enraged boar. The boy's cries are quickly smothered in the cackles and laughter from the others.
2: They're probably going on these fun hunting expeditions to hunt for wild boar. They're hunting for other wild games, such as different types of poultry. And then they're also going to be going for other animals, such as turtles. Turtles were really popular because they were said to have a lot of medicinal properties. Fruits and vegetables run abundant in the Caribbean, especially citrus fruits. And these are very high in vitamin C. So not only are they restoring their ship and their provisions, This is also a chance for them to kind of get their health back up to snuff, for them to take on another journey when the sailing season comes back around in the springtime. So this is also a really great opportunity for pirates to really let their hair down and to really just de-stress. And the way you do this is through a lot of partying.
0: And pirates know how to party. It's an essential part of the job. When on shore at Christmas, with all the added ingredients, it's easy to imagine a Christmas feast like no other. It's twilight. The setting sun drops into the ocean, casting a deep orange glow across the horizon. Sat around a roaring fire, pirates carouse and laugh. In the middle, in the buccaneer style, Skewered from head to tail is a roasting hog, its belly splayed open and stuffed with local ingredients, lime, salt, and pimento. The mix of driftwood seats and ship's furniture scattered around the fire are all decked in palm leaves and ferns fashioned into cloths and plates. A little way off under a canvas tent, pirates crow and jeer. A game is being played, chance of faster FASTER BREAK OUT Inside, a game of five-finger fillets is underway. A pirate grimaces as his friend plunges a knife between his fingers, back and forth, faster and faster, its blade gouging into the oak barrel beneath until... A howl of pain pierces the laughter and a huge cheer goes up. Outside the tent, the hunters, now extremely drunk, are plucking small birds. One young pirate is being made to suffer a forfeit. It's young Lewis again. One drink for every bird his fellows caught. He finishes the gourd, wine streaming down his face, and stumbles away into the dark retching. He lurches past a pair of pirates, performing a ballad with a fiddle and flute. Others sing in the chorus, or the occasional lines they know. He stumbles on, into another group, almost falling into the fire. He stops dead and looks about, mystified. He tries to make sense of the scene that confronts him. Dressed in great finery is a judge. Stood at a makeshift lectern with a long white wig rolling over his shoulders, he is passing sentence on a pirate. Around him, the councilmen yell, Guilty! String him up! It's a trial. And in the docks, the condemned man, a friend of Lewis's, stands guilty, as charged, of piracy. Lewis, in a drunken panic, lunges forward with his knife, ready to kill the judge and free his friend. Luckily, one of the councilmen steps in and knocks the silly lad to the ground.
4: In the general history of pirates is a sense that pirates enjoy theatricals, that they like putting on plays and dressing up. There's one great story where one of the pirates kind of wrote his own play, and they put it on, and of course the pirates had been drinking, and one of them was so convinced by the verisimilitude of what was happening that he thought his friend was really in danger, and a melee broke out, and somebody lost an arm, and they weren't allowed to put on plays anymore.
0: In particular, pirates enjoyed putting on theatrical show trials, making light of what was a grim inevitability for many of them. But things getting out of hand at a pirate party is pretty much par for the course. The history books are full of similar examples.
4: There's a good account. It's Captain England's gang. They saw this group of ships, and they sort of fled, and they got away. And this happened on Christmas, and so to celebrate, they had a big three-day Christmas debauch, and they basically ran through all their fresh provisions. And so at the end of this wonderful Christmas holiday, these pirates are left with, like, almost no food not much to eat, and a leaking boat, and they've got to get back to Meridius. And so they, they have this three-day Christmas feast, and then they almost die. <laughs> because when they sobered up, they had eaten everything.
0: This kind of revelry might have been exaggerated around Christmas, but very typical of the pirate's life. But there are two vices in particular that might be brought to the fore when pirates go ashore. Sex and gambling. Yes. Even pirate captains deemed these two activities too troublesome for a crew of hardened mariners to handle in the close confines of a ship. Women and betting were so divisive between sailors that captains worried about a total breakdown of command, which meant the only thing better than a beach party was a night out on the town. In the Caribbean, during the golden age of piracy, there were a number of coastal towns and port cities a pirate ship might slip into unnoticed. But there are some ports where pirates were welcomed with open arms. Lawless settlements like Tortuga. After months at sea, a pirate crew might have money burning in their pockets and just one thing on their minds. Months at sea means months without women.
2: Christmas could be a really, really lonely time. So going to the tavern in groups, you know, to try to socialize with other people there as a way to alleviate their loneliness and make it feel like they have their family with them. Because in a way, these pirate ships, they had to kind of become their own families. Now, once night falls, this is when the fun starts to happen. This is when they're really letting loose from the stress at sea. A lot of women ran taverns. And so it was almost kind of a maternal feature that they could get, you know, Men owned taverns, but it was women who were usually taking orders, serving the drinks, serving the hot foods. So it's almost kind of they're getting this maternal aspect out of it. But of course, they've been quite lonely. This is why they would often buy the company of prostitutes.
0: It's a cool night in Tortuga, a mix of laughter, carols, shanties and music waft through the fogged up windows of a dockside tavern. Inside. The bar is heaving with bodies, a rich mix of odors abound, beer, food, sweat, and sweet perfume. Ale and rum is sloshing everywhere, every group of men is well attended by women. Next to the filthy rags of the mariners, the women are an image of refinement. It's only when you get close you might see the paint covering scars of smallpox and the stitches mending moth-eaten muslin. Somewhere, a glass is hurled, smashing against a wall. At a table on the far side of the room, one of the proprietors, a large madam, is quick to break up a fight. A staircase up to the rooms above divides the bar in two. An attractive young woman in a blue satin gown leads a man down the stairs and leaves a lingering kiss on him before walking away back to work the room. She passes a corner table, giving it a glance. Away from the cheer, half in shadows, sits a sinewy, rough-looking man, half collapsed on the table. He is quietly weeping. A woman calms him, rubbing his back, distributing maternal kindness. She whispers in his ear. The distressed pirate rests his head in her arm as she gently rocks him close to her chest. The young woman in blue continues, passing another table encircled by a tense crowd of men. Here, women are not the chief attraction. The game of cards is reaching its peak.
4: A lot of the way they lost their money is from gambling. Because remember, they can't gamble on board ships. Cheating was certainly an issue. Have you ever seen like an 18th century card deck? Cards were much more individualized and the faces would like be pointing in one direction and they were soft cardboard. I think it would have been much easier to cheat is what I'm saying, right? I think the temptation would have been very, very available, but also like if everybody's doing it, it's pretty easy to get caught.
0: The final hand is dealt. A great cheer on one side, howls of anguish on the other. Cries of cheat ring out people refuse to pay. A fist is thrown, a knife is pulled, a shot rings out. The young woman has already walked away, spotting a customer walking into the tavern. She knows him. They talk of a girl in every port. She wonders if her regulars ever stop to consider how many men she is a comfort to. Alternately, mother, sister, or wife for a night. Probably not. Back on the beach, the musicians are playing well into the night. The fiddler's fingers are bleeding from hours of working the strings. Around him, hoarse cries sound for more songs. He invents new lyrics to the same tunes, working in the names of the crew. When a pirate hears his name, he jumps for joy like a child. They all dance together in a circle around the fire, linking arms and embracing, clashing mugs in cheer spilling rum punch over each other. The band kicks it up a notch. The pirates dance faster at the jig. A light-hearted competition grows. The pirates dance in twos and synchronize their moves. They clasp each other's hands, hopping and shuffling, kicking sand into those dancing around them. One pair leap too far and stumble over. The sailors lie dizzy on the ground, laughing, watching the red-orange embers dissolve into the starry sky while the music, chanting, and drinking carries on around them. These moments reinforce the bonds of brotherhood on which the pirates rely.
2: Things like drinking together and singing together, playing music, dancing, everything like this, it wasn't just important for the pirates' and sailors' morale. It was really to kind of create a bond of friendship and fellowship. Pirates referred to themselves as a brethren. And part of this was because of the close relationships they were able to develop.
0: Money spent, provisions exhausted, no doubt with an aching head, it's back to sea. Very few of these pirates will retire wealthy, though many will quietly slip off the pirate account and return to a more normal life over time. For many, the boom and bust cycle is a trap. It's hard to save for the future. What with the gambling, drinking, cheating and whoring that punctuates the end of every voyage? Many will die at sea or on the executioner's docks, but they will have lived on their own terms. As the dread pirate Bartholomew Roberts said, a merry life and a short one. Next week on Real Pirates... We return to the outbreak of Golden Age piracy in the Caribbean with the story of one of the most feared and notorious mariners of the 18th century, Black Sam Bellamy. His rise was meteoric, and in his short career he tore through the American colonial consciousness and created a legend as fantastic and terrifying as any pirate before or since. But how much do we know of the man behind the myth? Social revolutionary? Rogue agent of change? Or a jilted lover with a point to prove. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Borough for podcast Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by McAllister Beckson and Oman Khalid. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matias Torres-Sole. Mix master by Kianne Ryan-Morgan.